Why, hello! Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's really great to have you with us. And my name is C.R. Wiley. I am a pastor and a writer, and I live in the Pacific Northwest. And I've uh, written something that's uh, out by now, I think, uh, on Tom Bombadil. And uh, I've been interviewed about it, and I'm enjoying the, you know, the whole process of sort of the, sort of the, I guess, uh, you know, sort of unfolding or sort of presenting that that book. But enough about me. Why don't we why don't we talk about the other guys on the show? Tom, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, and philosophy at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. And uh, as I've mentioned, other shows. Working currently on a book um, that uh, integrates systematic theology, Christian ethics, and their relevance for timely issues like technology. Great, great, and Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, and a professor emeritus, meaning I'm retired, of history at Central Connecticut State University. All right. Well, as longtime listeners to the show know, we are in different locations. Glenn is there in South Bend, Indiana. Tom is back in Connecticut. And I'm here in the Pacific Northwest. And this particular show, I think, will be the first show of the new year, 2022. Um, But regardless of when it comes out, uh, this particular subject that we're going to be talking about today is one that we've returned to again and again, just because we just can't kill this guy. (laughs) And we desperately want to. So, Glenn, what are we talking about today? Who are we talking about? And why do we want to kill him? Longtime (laughs) listeners will be well aware of who we're going to be dealing with by this point. And that is a Genevan by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, Although Rousseau is usually associated with France, he's from Geneva. And although Calvin is usually associated with Geneva, he's from France. But there's really nothing to do with the two of them, they're, they're nothing in common. Um, Rousseau, we, we actually discussed a long time ago, if, if we could go back in the past and kill somebody, who would it be? Podcast listeners, you don't realize just how violent Glenn Sunshine is. <laughs> he, he sits up at night thinking about, you know, you remember Inspector Dreyfus in The Pink Panther? Kill, <laughs> kill Rousseau. <laughs> kill Rousseau. <laughs> well, R- Rousseau is the name that came out of my mouth before the question was even asked. Um, so, so, but, the, but the question is why? And um, I've got actually three areas that Rousseau um, contributed to the deterioration of Western civilization through. And so we'll see how many of these we get to. But um, where I'm going to start is, you know, Rousseau is usually associated with the Enlightenment. And uh, the Enlightenment was frequently called the Age of Reason in in older books. Uh, the Enlightenment thinkers were known as philosophes, um, philosophers in French. They're not really uh, philosophers, they're social critics. But they put a huge emphasis on the use of reason to try to solve human problems. Rousseau, although he's usually lumped with the philosophes, is in many ways an anti-philosophe. Um, because reason wasn't really the thing that drove Rousseau. Um, He certainly made use of it, but it wasn't really central to even how he thought of himself in a lot of ways. Um, 
much less well known is that the period coming, you know, toward the late Enlightenment, late 18th century into the 19th century is sometimes referred to not as the age of reason, but as the age of sensibility. And Rousseau is really a critical figure in the emergence of this age of sensibility. Now, the word sensibility is not one we use a lot anymore. For those of you who are familiar with Jane Austen, you may know the work Sense and Sensibility. Uh, in, in that novel, it's two sisters, one of whom represents sense and the other sensibility, and they are pretty much opposites each, of each other. So when we talk about sensibility, we're not talking about things that actually make sense or that are sensible. Uh, probably the best way to get to this is to talk a little bit about um, some of Rousseau's own work. Uh, he has uh, one piece, for example, called Reveries of a Solitary Walker, in which he basically just sort of talks about what's going on in his head and especially what his feelings are, his emotional responses to things around him and so on. It, it's essentially an internal psychological portrait. Actually, it's another work called Confessions, which is modeled after Augustine's Confessions, except in Augustine's Confessions, well, let, let's do Augustine first here. Augustine's Confessions is the first intellectual autobiography in history. And there have been people who said that in the Confessions, when Augustine uses the word I, he is the first person in history to use it the way we mean the word. Okay. Uh, I, as a distinct, unique individual, um, my own ideas, my own uh, perceptions of the world, and so on. The key thing, though, is that for Augustine, when he looked inside, what he saw was the vacuum, to use Pascal's words, the vacuum in his heart that led him to God. Oh, for Augustine... The self-reflection turned him to God. With Rousseau, his self-reflection, okay. in a lot of ways, turned him into God. He became the center of the universe, the center of everything. And what was really important was his own personal reactions, his own personal responses, his psychology, his emotions, all of those kinds of things, rather than leading him to a knowledge of the holy. Okay. So that's the, that's, that's really the key thing that's going on here. And in a lot of ways, Rousseau not only represents the age of sensibility, this idea of emotions and, and, you know, feeling and, and response to the sublime and all of that kind of thing, but he is also sort of a proto-romantic. And while I think that there are a lot of positive things that come out of romanticism, there are also a lot of toxic things. And Rousseau is really, in a lot of ways, at the fountainhead of the toxic side of romanticism, uh, which ultimately is going to lead us um, through, well, this is really, this uh, path is rather well charted uh, by Carl Truman in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's going to lead us ultimately to ideas of authentic living, of being true to yourself, all of these kinds of things on the one hand, but it's also going to bring us right to Freud on the other. Uh, Freud is a scientific or a pseudoscientific expression of 
this idea of sensibility that you are is yeah. what you are on the inside. It, this is what, what Truman calls the psychological man. Right. Uh, would you say, Glenn, that this corresponds, or maybe, maybe, maybe that's not the best way to put it, or sort of it sort of emerges or develops because we've lost faith in our ability to apprehend the external uh, world reality. It, sort of, uh, not in the empirical sense, and obviously we've got sense data to work with, but I'm talking about uh, eternal verities uh, that are external to ourselves, uh, what we traditionally would call metaphysics. Yeah, I think, I think that, that, that there's a lot of truth to that, although it's worth noting that many of the true philosophes uh, certainly had a strong metaphysical vision, but at the same time, um, by reducing the world, I mean, within the context of the Enlightenment, by reducing the world to what seems reasonable and to reason and all of that sort of thing, it really opens the door to this. Because in the end, what is reasonable to one person may not be reasonable to another. And it really creates this, I would argue, something, you know, it, it tends toward a sort of solipsistic system where what's true is what's true for you. And once you go there, it's a small step toward psychological man. Yeah, Tom. Yeah, one of the things I think also um, kind of keep in mind a shift maybe from Augustine to Rousseau is with Augustine, you still have, as Chris was just mentioning, a, a, a kind of classic Christian view of the world in which our relation to God is one that's you know mediated through Christ. So even for Augustine, our our interior relation to God is patterned on the word. Um, a matter of fact, the whole Trinity, it's patterned on Trinity and word in our being made in the image of God. Um, so it isn't, it isn't this direct kind of um, connection to, to, uh, to the infinite, if you will, uh, apart from um, Christ's mediation. Um, so what you have with Rousseau is very different. The world has shifted now to what um, one writer called the similarity thesis, where basically we are similar to God, the, that identity view, where God is basically just a, 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 a God is infinite in a quantitative, not a qualitative way. In other words, God is just much bigger than us. So, so for Rousseau, through his self, he in a sense is like that which is infinite and he can kind of connect to it if he can get into its key the right way and therefore be an expression of it. And this is very much, I think, at, at, at the heart of romanticism is this, this sense of ultimate dependence on some kind of infinite, but to the point where we become basically an expression of it, but not mediated through, through Christ and his incarnation. And so we become incarnations, if you will, without without Christ, and therefore we almost become godlike. Um, and so that's just something I wanted to kind of connect for some people. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Um, I would also argue that, unlike Augustine, Rousseau's reveries and his confessions and things like that really amount to an exercise in narcissism. You know, for Augustine, it was very much a theological exercise, looking inward as a way of not finding God inside himself, but finding his need for God in himself. 
Maybe that's the best way to put it. For Rousseau, none of that is in place. And like I said, he self-consciously patterned what he was doing after Augustine's Confessions, but it's a radically, radically different work, um, much more narcissistic. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, I think, too, uh, you know, Tom uh, notes the mediating uh, work of Christ as, you know, who is the word. Uh, this uh, understanding of the Lagos that, you know, Augustine uh, had uh, been working in uh, is not something that characterizes the Enlightenment. It's not something that certainly characterizes Rousseau. For for those fellows, uh, reason was something that kind of was like a like a calculating machine that worked inside your head. It wasn't a way of tapping into reality as such, you know, outside of yourself. Although I think probably, uh, you know, in the early phases of the Enlightenment, there was still some sense of its um, sort of dependence upon or compatibility with this larger understanding. But as, as, as definitely by the time you get to Kant, that's completely severed. It's not the, it's not the case anymore. So uh, we all possess reason according to someone like Kant, uh, but it's independent. It's sort of like going on inside of our heads. So this is where some, some of our friends who are, you know, uh, fans of Van Til like to use the term, uh, autonomous reason. This is what they're getting at. Uh, it's not so much that we're participating in the reason of God, like we would understand with, say, Augustine or the Fathers. This is a kind of a modern uh, way of thinking about reason. That is, uh, uh, you know, something kind of that it can be engaged in without actually tapping into the bigger picture. So uh, I think that that provides a kind of um, way to kind of think about the background in which Rousseau is is, is beginning to work, um, or does his work with this this uh, sort of solipsism, you know, sort of this narcissistic exercise that that you're describing, Glenn. It's insofar as you know he's doing that, he's in some sense doing what some other uh, you know uh, philosophers are doing, right. Yeah, and when you look at the early philosophers, um, most of them were really leaning heavily toward deism, uh, which is the idea that God created the universe and then does not intervene with it again. And since God is a God of reason, the universe is uh, uh, governed by reason, and you can search it and find the laws you know, that govern the physical universe, all of those kinds of things. And then that becomes a paradigm for everything else that they do. Um, the Newton, Newton's achievement um, in the Principia Mathematica is in many ways considered a prototype for how you go about finding, finding truth. Uh, of course, they didn't see in Newton what we see. They saw in Newton a guy who looked at a whole bunch of evidence, thought about it really hard, and through the use of reason came to the right conclusion. We see the scientific method. They're very different. So, um, yeah, th this idea that reason can operate sort of on an autonomous level was really rooted in deism because you have a non-interventionist God, but a God of reason and therefore a reasonable God and therefore a reasonable universe. And so reason works. With the Lisbon earthquake in, I think it was 1755, where... Uh, thousands and thousands of people were killed, that raised real questions in the minds of Europeans on whether or not we can really think of God as being in any sense good. 
and or whether we can even talk about God creating a, a rational, reasonable universe, with the net result, you see a, a, a decline in deism and a rise in atheism toward that period. And uh, that's going to lead into a lot of the, the 19th century stuff. And I think it influences Kant as well, although he wasn't really an atheist. Yeah, this uh, was a, um, is it Candide that, de- that deals with that? Uh, Candide the, is one of the one of the works that the Lisbon earthquake figures in, and you, right. you can, Voltaire had been a, a deist prior to that, but you can see in Candide his real questioning on on the benevolence of providence, as it would be put in the Americas, um, and really his doubts about uh, whether or not we can even speak meaningfully of there even being a god in a world with this much chaos in it. Yeah, was it was it Leibniz who came up with the phrase of the best of all possible worlds, and that's right. kind of what's being mocked with Candide. Right, and Candide, as usual with with a satirist like Voltaire, um, the way optimism, the philosophy that that um, Leibniz espoused, uh, the way that's presented is really a caricature, um, but that makes for fun reading. And Candide is an extraordinarily funny book. One of the problems is it gets you laughing at some of the wrong things, but that's a whole separate discussion. (laughs) Uh, For what it's worth, by the way, Voltaire, arguably the greatest of the French philosophes, thought Rousseau was a nutcase, and he would, I I think, have approved of shooting him. (laughs) That's right. And Hume Hume felt the same way, particularly after Rousseau visited, uh, I guess, spent some time with him and came over and... Anyway, uh, <laughs> I may be getting ahead of the story. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so in any event, one of the reasons why I think Rousseau is so destructive is this move toward um, narcissism, solipsism, psychological man. Um, Freud, in a lot of ways, does not come without Rousseau laying a foundation for him. And Freudianism has produced a lot of really nasty results in culture as well. Uh, we'll we'll get to some of that maybe a bit later. Yeah, I think what this does raise for me is the at least the the problem of why certain ideas uh, find a ready audience at certain times. So everybody who knew the guy Rousseau <laughs> thought he was a nutcase and didn't like him. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, his ideas find a ready audience. They, they spread. It's kind of like a, a viral uh, meme or something. It just they mm-hmm. take off. I don't. I don't have any good explanation for it. I'm just. It's just something I've, I've I've puzzled about. Yeah, Tom. And if I remember right, he he was one of these characters that hung out with, tried to hang out in the salons and and things like that. And and there was that kind of. On the one hand, they despise him. On the other, they thought the, the ideas and, and kind of the strangeness of it all was something they were attracted to, <laughs> that, that same. Yeah, and we'll get to that later. Yeah. That, that's actually a really important point. <laughs> but, but Chris, I think the answer to the question is when you lose the idea of the transcendental, when you lose Christian doctrine, frankly, what do you replace it with? Where do you go? And they didn't have a ready answer for that. And so people were on a search, I think, for meaning, for purpose, for those kinds of things. And, well, you know, it's no accident that a century later you've got uh, uh, Max Weber 
talking about disenchantment. Um, this is really, I think, already be we're beginning to see this already in the Enlightenment with a loss of, of, of any kind of transcendental meaning or purpose. And what Rousseau offers is a way of finding purpose within, and particularly a personal purpose, finding, a, finding something within yourself that you can look to as this source of meaning. I think it's really the loss of the transcendent, loss of Christian doctrine that leads you to creating an environment in which these ideas can take root and flourish. And it's no accident as you look at the way Rousseau's ideas spread, they spread among people who have rejected the gospel. Yeah. Now, a second area, I mean, so that, that's one. Um, a second area that's worth noting is his impact on education, which actually goes in a couple of different directions. Rousseau wrote two books on education. The first was called Emile, which was his vision of the education of a boy, how that should properly be done. And the second was called Julie ou la nouvelle Héloïse, Julie or the new Héloïse, Héloïse being a uh, important figure in medieval history. She was a student, a lover of uh, Pierre Abelard, and eventually became an abbess in uh, a convent called the Paraclete. And she was one of the most brilliant and best educated women in medieval Europe. So the new Heloise, how are we going to produce a new Heloise? Mm -hmm. And this is told in this novel, Julie. Let, let's start with Emile. Um, in Emile, Rousseau argues for what we would today call child-centered education. Mm -hmm. That is to say, the idea is that a boy's tutor ought to allow the boy to pursue his own interests. Um, they, the child directs his own education by whatever it is he is interested in. Now, this makes perfect sense if you think about the age of sensibility, What's important, what's real, and all of that to you is what's going on on the inside. So the tutor doesn't impose a curriculum on the student. Instead, the tutor provides the student with the resources to pursue his own interests. That's, that's the core of it. Um, it is worth noting, though, that Rousseau did recognize that boys, there were certain things boys needed to learn that they may not be interested in learning. So it is up to the tutor to manipulate the boy into getting interested in them. But overall, it's the boy's interests that count. Now, this theory has had a lot of play in educational circles. Rousseau is considered one of the, the founding fathers in a lot of ways of a lot of modern educational theory. I think personally, I, well, I've seen some of the results of this in schools of education over the years, and uh, I think personally it's a serious mistake um, because, uh, well, to quote a friend of mine, if I had a chance to pursue only the things that I was interested in, it would have been beer and girls. <laughs> okay. Right. The, the, the fact is, in education, one of the things that's important is character development. And character development is not done on the basis of having you do just the things you want to do. 
You know, yeah, it's yeah. learning. It's learning to do things you don't want to do. It's learning to struggle with things. It's learning to deal with the unpleasant things in our lives. Those are the things that produce the kind of character that you're going to need ultimately to succeed in life. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, I think as well, uh, there are things that the teacher knows that the student doesn't and knows their importance. I think there's something to be said for making a subject appealing, uh, Mm -hmm. accessible, understandable, that kind of thing. And I do know that, um, you know, the kind of rigidity uh, that sometimes was um, the unfortunate practice of, you know, teachers at that time in terms of just sort of straight uh, memorization, repetition, that kind of thing, uh, could um, unfortunately uh, make particular subjects completely uh, uninteresting or repellent to students. But there's something uh, to the fact that, you know, a little person, particularly a young person, just doesn't know what uh, good is. Like, and I, I use this example a lot. So like when I was a kid, I didn't like the look of pecan pie or pecan pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just looked weird. <laughs> and I, I consequently never even tried it. And my father would, would, would uh, you know, offer me a slice and I would refuse and he'd smile and he'd say, fine, <laughs> more for me. <laughs> now, you know, years later, I, I, I dared to try it and discovered that it's perhaps the greatest pie in the world. And one, one of the things that's been fun to watch is, you know, these reaction videos on YouTube where Europeans are trying American uh, dishes uh, that are, you know, that are, that are traditionally offered at Thanksgiving. <laughs> and uni- universally, they're like, this pecan pie thing is like the greatest thing in the history of the world. <laughs> there, there's, actually a, there's actually a video of people in Pakistan trying cheesecake. I, I saw that one. That was, that was great. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I saw that one. They, they really do appreciate cheesecake. <laughs> but, yeah. but anyway, the, you know, there are things that some people know that other people don't know. And, and they do have to kind of get past, in certain cases, your initial reluctance or distaste for something before you come to appreciate it. Uh, it this is easily, you know, sort of illustrated with food, like I just did with you know, pecan pie, or in another case in my life, uh, sushi. Sushi was something that I tried once, didn't like, tried again much later, found a love for it, that kind of thing. So there are just so many subjects like this that we just simply cannot trust children to make good choices about what they ought to spend their time uh, studying. Yeah. Tom, were you going to say something? Yeah. um, I mean, a couple of things. I I know that, um, I mean, if we just think of it, you know, as Christians, the significance of discipleship and bringing up children in the way they should go. I mean, we're already, you know, we already have an understanding there that the will needs direction. (laughs) Um, It isn't directed towards its own good. It's not directed towards truth, beauty, and goodness of its own. It may have it may be captivated by the wonder of creation, but it tends to distort those things and direct them towards the destructive. And and the you know and and the kind of if I remember right, Rousseau kind of had his own version of Genesis, and he has a very hyper individualistic sense of the person, where the moral obligations to others is something that's imposed from the outside, and it's something one shouldn't 
And this is kind of why his education went in that direction. He, he sees a very disconnection um, in a social level where he thinks we're the only place we're connected really is to an, um, the original state of things before we actually are disrupted by these obligations. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into some more of that later. That's point. That's our third component for why I would <laughs> shoot Rousseau, shoot Rousseau <laughs> twice and then club him with the gun. Um, you know, the, the, um, you know, I would argue that a lot of the ideas that Rousseau proposes in a meal have produced really bad results in educating children. And yet they are, and continue to be recycled regularly in um, in education in schools of education at the university level. Yeah, I mean, very often when I was teaching this stuff in class, my students who were in in, in education would tell me, "Yeah, the, yeah, we were talking about this, you know, last week in class." I mean, th- these are bad ideas that continue to be toxic in education today and have contributed to the real decline in the quality of education that students are getting in the schools because this is the ideology that is being pursued. Yeah, Tom. Um, And I think we can see it like in concrete ways with the schools, a lot of the education systems trying to get children in in contrast to their parents' wishes to pick their identities, their genders, their sexuality, all these things. Mm -hmm. So in in a sense, they are still cultivating, but they're directing them in this way as though they're, they're, uh, if they can rip themselves from their parents in that kind of upbringing, they're liberating them to actually choose what they really want when they're actually guiding them and directing their wills towards, I would say, distorted ends. Uh, I I would say distorted ends. I'd say destructive ends. Yeah, that's right. But let's be real here. There are genuine victims of this kind of ideology. But it gets better. (laughs) Because when we leave Emile behind and go to Julie, we find the ideal education for a girl. And for a girl, you do not do, according to Rousseau, any of the stuff you do for a boy. You have no interest in encouraging her to develop her own interests or to pursue her own interests and dis- and discover what what her her desires are or anything like that instead you need to direct the girls into what could be called the conjugal virtues <laughs> you want to direct them to be wives and mothers and teach them that that is really their fundamental purpose in life is to be wives and mothers, and never to play any role in public life. It's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm not familiar with this work. I've not uh, read it, uh, and I've not never heard anyone, you know, address it. Uh, Nobody ever talks about it. They focus on Emil. <laughs> yeah, isn't that interesting? So now, what does that say about Rousseau? Uh, what does it say about his, I guess, uh, regard for women? There's a number of things that come to my mind right now. I don't know if you're planning to get into any of that stuff. Well, it's worth noting that Rousseau never married, but he did have a mistress with whom he had several children, all of which he pressured her to turn into orphanages. Right. So he basically got his mistress pregnant, and when she had babies, they abandoned them. Right. 
And this is one of the points that Voltaire makes. He says, why anyone would take education on child, it would take direction on child rearing from someone who abandons his children, he just doesn't understand. Yeah, you know, yeah. and this was another. This is another of Voltaire's digs at Rousseau, but yeah, I mean, as far as he was concerned, that's what women were for. You get them pregnant, you get them cooking. Which is which is fascinating because um, again, because of this sort of uncritical uh, embrace of Emile, maybe it's just because people just uh, have assumed that his regard for women was the same as his regard for boys. Um, you know, for girls, just for boys, it's, 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 uh, it's worth, I just, just kind of thinking about what kind of nutcase this guy was, but also, um, you know, kind of the selfishness of, of it, because what it, what it seems to reflect in my mind anyway, is okay. It's, it's all right for guys to be self-absorbed, but uh, women's task is, I guess, maybe to help the self-absorption along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Women's job is to serve men. Yeah. That's really what it boils down to. Well, and, right. and it, leads to, it leads to kind of like what you just said about really the, the, the painful suffering for children. I mean, the, you think a lot of times of the broken family, especially in, in places in which government is almost forced communities to have this setup where um, the female will basically be taken care of by the state and, and can, can, you know, the more children sometimes, the more help they get where the men don't have to bear any responsibility and they can go from home to home to home, impregnate and produce a lot. So you almost have this kind of Rousseauian setup um, going on all over the place and in, increasingly encouraged for all strata of society. Right. And this, uh, in turn, can go back to the age of sensibility, that just like a meal is an expression of that, you know, what the child should do is pursue their own internal interests and, and that sort of thing. The way this evolves over time, actually in very quick order, it moves to sexual liberation. Um, even in the romantics, a lot of the English romantics in the, uh, the 19th century are going in this direction. And we see its fruit right now in the inner cities. Or in, or in rural areas increasingly with, you know, the opioid crisis and places like, you know, Kentucky and West Virginia and so forth. They have the mm-hmm. same dynamics now that we associated with the inner city, you know, a decade or two ago. Yeah. Now, I, I want to actually hold off a moment on continuing the discussion of Julie because Rousseau's attitudes toward women are going to have a huge impact on the French Revolution. But in order to get to Rousseau's impact on the French Revolution, we have to move to strike three for Rousseau, (laughs) um, which is the um, uh, discourse on inequality or the social contract. They're both basically pointing in the same direction. Now, the story here is that there was a contest in a French academic, well, French academy, where they asked people uh, for essays discussing the origins of inequality. And Rousseau wanted to enter the contest, and he went to one of his few Enlightenment friends, a guy by the name of Diderot. Uh, Diderot was the 
principal person behind the encyclopedia, which is a massive, very, very important work of Enlightenment scholarship. Um, can't get into him uh, right now. But he went to Diderot and presented uh, his ideas of what he was going to argue in the in his essay for the Academy. Now, one of the things you need to know is that the, the French philosophes were really into the idea of liberty, liberté, by which they primarily meant economic liberty, what we would call liberalism, or what Europeans would call liberalism, we would call free market capitalism. This was core value of most of the Enlightenment philosophes property rights, um, and like I said, economic liberty. Uh, it's no accident that it's during this period that Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, published in 1776. He was expressing ideas that were really current among the philosophes. And so Rousseau goes to Diderot and says, this is what I'm going to argue. And Diderot says, well, you know, you could argue that, but it's going to be basically the same answer everybody else is coming up with. It would be really interesting if you argued the opposite. And Rousseau thought about it and said, yeah, yeah, I think I can do that. And he wrote his discourse on inequality, which was a contrarian view on the issue of human equality. And he won the prize. And then he followed this up with the social contract. And he started pushing all of these ideas, like I said, as a contra really as a contrarian, away from the mainstream of thought in the period. What's worth noting is he didn't believe this stuff initially until he either talked himself into it or just put on a good show. It's kind of hard to tell which. Yeah, which, what's your so, take, Glenn? Would you, um, you I think Rousseau was was crazy enough that he talked himself into it. <laughs> um, now, the, what he argued, now, that, that that's a long setup for what he's arguing. What he argued uh, in these two works is that the origin of inequality is society itself. That um, society is built on, pro on private property, property rights, and as soon as you've got private property, you have inequality because some people have stuff that other people don't have. So the issue of property rights, private property and things like that, foundational to, mo to virtually all of the other economic thought in this period, uh, he argues is really the reason for inequality in these works. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of other places that we can go here, but the core of this is that ultimately we need to get rid of private property and further that in order to guarantee human equality, everybody has to be, well, everybody has to submit the final determination of their own personal interests to the general will. And this is everybody from the king down to the lowliest peasant. Everybody has to submit the final determination of their interest to the general will. This will produce equality, and it will also produce true liberty, true freedom. Now, 
if this is beginning to sound like communism, uh, there's a reason for that. Rousseau was a big influence on Karl Marx. Just to, just on that, his, yeah. the whole notion of alienation, right, comes from, I mean, the, the fact that capitalism and competition alienate us from our immediacy to our original state, if you will. And that becomes something I think that Marx really exploits with the whole relationship to, to work and and the like, if I remember right. It's been a while since yeah. I read it. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. I think another thing I'd like to think about is what is a, what's implied by general will. Uh, we're not talking about uh, the deliberative process of a, of a Congress or representative uh, government. Uh, we're talking about something less um, easily, I guess, described or controlled or, or managed. It's something almost kind of like a mob psychology. Right. And here, here's, here, here's one of several problems here. Um, one of them, this is, I, this is my prime example of one of the major tools of advertisers and other propagandists. Okay. He uses, okay, uh, a, a little bit of linguistic stuff here. Uh, words in languages frequently have two different components to their meaning. You've got your your denotation, which is your dictionary definition, what it actually you know technically means. But there's also the connotation. The connotation are the the sort of ideas or feelings that are associated with the word. English is a particularly rich language in connotations. So, for example. Um, you are rigid, but I'm consistent. We're saying basically the same thing about each other, but rigid is bad and consistent is good. I'm flexible. You're a flip-flopper. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are any number of things like this that we can do. So you pick the word you want to use, not just by the dictionary definition, but by the connotations, the emotional impact that the word is going to have. And you can cue people in on what, what you think and what you want them to think simply by your choice of words. Okay, Even if the dictionary definitions are all consistent. Mm. Now, the trick here that Rousseau is doing is he is taking the word freedom or liberty and he is redefining it. But because everybody likes the idea of liberty, nobody is really opposed to liberty or freedom. When he uses the word, he relies on the connotations that go along with freedom, the good feelings we have with it, to carry his argument when he's redefined the word out of all recognition. Yeah. How do you get the idea that freedom is me submitting to the general will, not being able to make my own decisions on the things that are fundamentally the most important to me. How, do you, how, how is that in any sense of the word freedom? It isn't. But by defining it that way, I have to submit the final determination of my interests to the general will, and that is true freedom. Defining it that way you can then use the word freedom and the rest of the thing, and people are going to say, yeah, this is great. It's a wonderful mm -hmm. discussion of freedom, when it really isn't. Mm -hmm. So the connotation of the word freedom is what carries his argument here. Now, is there a kind of um, reapportionment of, um, you know, the practice of making your own choices in this process? So we know that 
that Rousseau was a sexual libertine in, in a sense, you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, in another way, he could say, well, no, I'm, I'm supporting sort of the social uh, life of my country or whatever because I submit to the general will. Um, there's a kind of uh, inversion uh, of how we normally think about, or at least, you know, sort of traditionally have thought about uh, responsibility and freedom. So um, kind of the the way we've operated uh, in healthy societies is we say, okay, I'm going to take, you know, personal responsibility for my behavior, uh, which includes my sexual sort of, you know, what I do with, with my sexual life. Uh, but I've got uh, control over property. I've got control over economic matters and livelihood and how I vote and, and so forth. So there's a sense in which uh, my liberty is expressed through the economic and the political, even though in terms of certain facets of my personal life, I'm not free to just do anything that my my sexual urges uh, want me to sort of, you know, sort of do. Uh, with Rousseau, you've got the kind of the reversed. You've got, okay, now I'm free to have all kinds of uh, sexual liaisons with different women and so forth and, and maybe spend a lot of time talking about my moods <laughs> and that kind of thing. But uh, in these other areas where I've been free politically and economically, now I'm not. So there's, you see what I'm getting at? There's been right. kind of a... Yeah. So the age of sensibility comes back in here once again in that who I really am is what I feel, what I desire, and liberty ought to come in acting out on those desires. Right. You know, so you get that libertinism. But at the same point, and this is where Rousseau is not really being terribly consistent. Yeah. Um, At the same point, you have this idea that I need to submit to the general will. And the general will might not be for me to sleep with every woman I, w- I want to sleep with. So, you know, you, you've got something, you've got an internal tension here. Yeah, Tom. Well, we, we kind of experience this now, I think, culturally. I mean, on the one hand, you have this, um, this the religion of the state, if you will, this general will, if you, you call it that, that basically is, is or saying it's a general will. That is, there's an imposing a frame that, on the one hand, holds back any kind of limits, good or bad, or however you define it, on sexual expression or identity expression. So it, it's meant to serve those things. But on the other hand, you know, with vaccine mandates and um, issues of, uh, you know, other other issues of of moral conscience and things like that. Those things are meant to conform to this 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 general thread, and so you you have this tug. You know, on the one hand, you know um, this this larger picture, this this replacement religion is you're meant to conform to. But in doing so, we're going to create that little bit of space where you can be free in terms of your sexuality, your identity, and all this, especially if it goes against what was a former kind of general will that is now taboo, like Christianity or Judeo-Christian heritage or something. It's And, and I think, you know, I think Weicker and others, uh, Bruce Weicker, I think that was his name, used to say this is replacement religion. They knew what they were up to with this. It was it was creating a new kind of Eden and a new kind of state, state uh, secular state religion. Yeah. yeah, and I think what we're seeing now is, frankly, 
One of the reasons I wish the guy had been shot young <laughs> is we're seeing the fruit of Rousseau's ideas being played out in our culture right now. Yeah, yeah. I had this these very you know uh, conversation. I had this conversation with uh, my students when I was uh, uh, at Harvard or my fellow students, and uh, you know I, I I pointed this out. I said you've exchanged what I think is a petty form of freedom for something more sub- substantive. You know, political and economic liberties um, have been lost, uh, but in terms of uh, sort of compensation, uh, you've encouraged us all to kind of uh, give ourselves over to Dionysius, you know, to sort of yeah. get lost in our sexual appetites. And you just want to make sure that we do it in a safe way. You know, you pass out condoms, you know, you encourage people to take the pill, women to take the pill, whatever, you know. And, and now it, even that kind of stuff has been kind of, I guess, um, well, uh, wheeled back, uh, sort of rewound a bit uh, with all of the, you know, heavy-handed sort of uh, approach to consent, you know, that we, you see in colleges these days, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm reflecting on, you know, mm-hmm. class conversations in the nineties and the eighties <laughs> that probably yeah. would get me kicked out of school today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now I, what I'd like to point out though, two other things here on, on the social contract. First of all, it also is the root of the noble savage myth. Mm. I mean, there are earlier antecedents. You see some of this in Montaigne, for example, and some others, but this idea of the noble savage, why is the, sa- the savage noble? The savage is noble because he hasn't been corrupted by civilization, by private property, and by all of those kinds of things. So this entire concept of the noble savage that you see emerging and being discussed, like I said, there are earlier roots. Montaigne in the 17th century is talking about this to some extent. But Rousseau is the guy who really popularizes it. And one yeah. of the weird... One of the weird places you see this is in portraits of Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> if you look at early portraits of Franklin, he is he is like an Enlightenment thinker. He's in his frock coat and he's got the wig and all of this kind of thing. You look at the later portraits, the one you see most often, and he's got the frock coat, but he's wearing a beaver skin hat with his hair sort of hanging out and so on. When he went to France, Rousseau was really popular and he quickly sized up the situation and decided deliberately to present himself as a rustic from the margins of civilization <laughs> so that he could appeal to, still in the frock coat, but he could then appeal to this idea of being in a simpler, more virtuous society because it hasn't been tamed and spoiled by civilization. He's deliberately playing on that to get French support for the revolution. <laughs> yeah, we got to do a show on Franklin sometime because that guy. Yeah, Franklin really, is really worth doing. He's cagey, and uh, he, uh, I, you know, on, he he knew how to play the audience. You know, you've got poor oh, Richard yeah. and sort of his his shtick over here that appealed to kind of the Puritan sensibility. He gets he finds himself in France, and he 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 takes this sort of thing, this sort of thread, and plays it. You could get snuff boxes with his face on it with the hat. You know, he was doing the whole marketing thing. Now, <laughs> in a in, in, it's a good thing. In and a also way, living like a libertine, <laughs> he did. But in a way, right. you know, uh, we we owe our country we owe our country to that guy because mm-hmm. uh, you know. They couldn't stand John Adams, you know, who mm-hmm. was who was, uh, you know, morally upright. You know, <laughs> they just 
he was the sort of guy that just completely t- turned off the French intellectual class. But, f- right. but Franklin, he was this uh, cause for celebration. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's a fa- fascinating thing. Yeah, Tom. Um, yeah, I was going to. Uh, I feel like I'm in class. Hey, <laughs> but um, <laughs> well, this, this is how we keep from talking over each no, other. It's, Sorry. No, it works. It's, it's just it's just kind of interesting to be on that side of things. Um, the uh, now, I think you know one of the things I remember reading, and I just found my copy again. Is I think it's a great, and you can you can weigh it as a historian, but I think it's a great kind of introduction to the character of Rousseau, and that's Philip Johnson's book on the intellectuals. Um, he has a chapter in that on, you know, just kind of the, the nasty human being that Rousseau was. But one of the things he says in that, and I, I have it, the, the quote here, is he said that um, he was the first intellectual systematically to exploit the guilt of the privileged. Um, and maybe this is somewhere you're going, but it, I, and they said, but he did it in such a way that he made being rude central to that kind of exploitation. Yeah, I think that's an accurate observation. I wasn't going to go there, but that is worth noting. <laughs> and um, and and uh, priv- guilt of the privileged is a major theme that that runs through American culture today. Yeah, yeah. Um, where I was going to go was Rousseau's influence on the French Revolution. Um, uh, Maximilien Robespierre, the guy who ultimately ended up leading the great committee, the Committee for Public Safety, and ushered in the terror, the most extreme period of the French Revolution, was a disciple of Rousseau. Now, this reminds me of the of the mask mandates and, and all of the care that's being uh, given to our our safety. This is you know public safety, mm-hmm. and what may result uh, well unintended consequences or maybe inevitable sort of consequences. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, well, if for Rousseau, excuse me, for Robespierre, um, the reason it's called the terror is actually something Robespierre had said. Um, he noted that his job was to execute the general will. And the people were angry. The people wanted revenge. And so in executing the general will, he was going to execute people. Mm. And, and he said at this point, terror is the order of the day. And he defined terror as revolutionary justice, pure and simple. Which brings me back to my, my, my quip about uh, public safety and uh, disease. Uh, there are increasing... Uh, it's becoming increasingly evident that the measures that we've taken are harming us in many ways, all in the name of public health. (laughs) You know, so, you know, studies are now, you know, establishing something that I think many parents kind of knew intuitively. If you send a kid to school with a mask on, a small child with a mask on, it's going to have a negative effect on the child's social socialization, as well as uh, learning outcomes. We know this. We're seeing this. It's proven. But the, the mindset just cannot seem to get beyond sort of the general will now on matters of how to address the pandemic. 100,000 more people died of opioid overdose in the last year than in the previous year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, talk about a public health crisis that was caused by social isolation. That's one of the things that drives addiction. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the French Revolution, what this means is 
in just one location in Paris at the Place de la Concorde, 1,961 people were guillotined. Across France, we're talking about in the course of the terror and the associated, um, the War of the Vendée, which was connected with it and so on, um, we're dealing with upwards of 100,000 people killed in France alone. Hmm. Um, these ideas are dangerous. And further, some of the primary victims or some of the key victims of the terror very early on were the various women who had taken part in public actions in the revolution earlier. Olympe de Gouges, the head of the, the uh, Organization of Revolutionary Republican Women, Society of Revolutionary Republican Women, excuse me. She and the other feminist leaders in the revolution are going to be guillotined. Why? Because Rousseau said women were biologically unfit for roles in public life. And therefore, these women who have taken these roles and refused to back down from them were enemies of the people. And in the name of revolutionary justice, they needed to be guillotined. Mm. This is the consequence of Rousseau's ideas. It is a, what Robespierre does during the terror is a direct application of many of Rousseau's ideas. Yeah. And these ideas via the revolution are going to have a massive influence on Marx. They're going to have a massive influence on Lenin and Stalin and indirectly on Mao. And so all of these, these disasters the, the mass slaughter of people by communists, really, they self-consciously look back to the French Revolution to, and therefore indirectly, at least to Rousseau, as their model. Yeah, one of the things that's puzzled me over the years is the inability or sort of the, the lack of um, uh, strong, visceral um, kind of condemnation for you know the the uh, the crimes of of not only the French Revolution but communism in general, when pe when people's minds go to totalitarian ex you know sort of the, the abuses of totalitarian excess, their minds go uh, you know to to Hitler every time, right? And ignoring the fact that Hitler was a socialist, he was a national socialist, not an international socialist. That's what separated him from the communists. Yeah. And I and I and I get that, but at the same time, where is the where is the uh, the the kind outrage. of yeah the outrage over the the crimes of communism or the French Revolution? I think that there's something uh, telling about this, and um, I think we see it even in our own country today, where um, crimes by certain groups that are that are characterized as being, you know, tr you know, conservative or right wing or whatever are treated in one way and crimes that are committed by people who are self-identified uh, leftists are treated in a different way uh, in, you know, uh, media uh, and in social media in general. There's just people just don't feel the same kind of outrage, it seems to me anyway. Right. Uh, it's not about the outcomes. It's not about the brutality. It's about it's about something else that's going on. And, and yeah. we've gotten to a point in time where we should probably wrap things up. I know I just 
raised <laughs> something to the surface that we may want to spend some time on. But Yeah, what, what you're dealing with is ideas coming out of the new left, particularly repressive tolerance from Herbert Marcuse. Um, that's really fundamentally what's at work here, along with the long march through the institutions, where basically leftists have taken over all the levers of culture in our society. And therefore, they downplay part of repressive tolerance. You downplay any problems from the left and you magnify problems from the right. Yeah, we've, you know, seen, we've seen that. That's in, the short answer. Yeah, I, I, we've seen that even in evangelicalism. There's a joke that people, you know, make about, uh, you know, people who punch uh, right but present themselves as conservatives in mm -hmm. certain environments. Anyway... Um, anything you want to say as we wrap up, Tom? Uh, yeah, one last point. I always say you, you kind of scratch a lefty, you see see the uh, evil beast underneath. Um, you kind of see this with Rousseau, uh, you know, maybe the, one of the fathers of it all in terms of kind of the ideas we have today. I mean, here's someone who went around talking about being, you know, himself, all the, you know, all the problems he had, but using it to serve his ego and talk about how he loved humankind in general, more than everyone else, but could barely get along with with anyone individually. And you see this today with figures like Noam Chomsky. I don't know if you saw his little thing out there saying basically for the unvaccinated, they need to be borderline starved to death to get them into conformity. And there's, there's this, this kind of disgusting evil um, breeding under all this stuff that has been selling itself in the universities. And really, uh, you know, this kind of evil like Glenn just said, puts on the face of we all need to be tolerant until they're given the place where they can start to unleash this heinous horror on others, which which is increasing. Um, I think this is something that uh, Christianity should never be tolerant of, and we should call it for what it is. Otherwise, we're not we're not being truthful. It's evil. It's demonic. Um, and and let's place let's say it for what it is. It's a rejection of creation, redemption. Christ and the replacement of it with with uh, with very evil ideas. Right. Anyway, Glenn, anything you want to say as we wrap up? Um, I think I've said quite enough already. Thank you. Gotcha. Shoot Rousseau twice and then beat him with the butt of the gun. <laughs> that is not it. On that happy thought, <laughs> thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. <laughs> we do appreciate your interest and your support. So long. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.